most holy Lord God in heaven. Lord, I pray, Lord God, that as we continue in our service here today, that you would hear our prayers here just for a few moments. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that just talking about that fire. Thank you that every life in the building was spared. And thank you that nobody was seriously hurt. Thank you that everybody should recover. And I pray, Lord God, that there would just be an outpouring from the community to help them and, and whatever help the folks need they could get and whatever you even might lay it upon us, your people, to do in response to the different ways there are to help that you would lead us as well. And uh, we pray that all the people would find uh, places to live that would be suitable and appropriate for them. And thank you, Lord, that we live in a land and at a time that is relatively, relatively prosperous and, and relief and help usually does come available quickly, and I pray that it would in this case, Lord God. Thank you for your blessing of, of grace upon all of the world. We thank you, Lord, that your saving grace goes to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord God, for many people in the midst of hardships like this and many other things going on in the world, that many people would continue to hear the gospel in Carteret, in Woodbridge, in all of the surrounding towns where our people are and, and where we minister at our jobs and everywhere, Lord, that people would hear your word and respond to the love and the grace of the gospel while there is still time, for there will not always be time. And we pray that many people would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive this tremendous gift of grace, Lord God, that you offer, which you have purchased with your own blood. Hallelujah. Lord, we lift up to you our dear sister Carmen, continuing to pray for her, Lord God. And we're just going to pray and pray until, Lord, we hear your answer, see your answer. We thank you, Lord God. I know you've been very faithful and good to her, to her and Raymond, her husband. And thank you for their love for you and their faith in you. And I pray they would find great comfort, Lord God, as they wait on an appropriate transplant in Carmen's situation, Lord God. We pray that you'd sustain her and help her, Lord God, as you already have, and just provide what is perfect and necessary when the time comes. Thank you, Lord. We continue to lift up Milagros to you, and Alejandro, her husband, and the whole family, Lord God, and we pray for her continued recovery, that you would strengthen her, and that whole family, Lord, where they believe, Lord God, I pray that their faith would provide for them much comfort in the Holy Spirit, Lord God. We pray for everybody in our church, Lord God, who just needs that touch from you, that blessing from you, that help from you, that they would find it in you, and above all, that they would find the comfort for their souls in the gospel and in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to love one another, to care for one another, to treat one another with respect and love and brotherhood and sisterhood, to minister to one another and to minister to the world in your name. Strengthen the ministry of our church. Strengthen as the word goes out from the pulpit, as it goes out over the internet, as it goes out in the lives and through the mouths of our people as they live. May we all be eagerly desirous to share the word of the gospel and invitations to hear the word of the gospel with others while we are here to minister and serve. 
Dear Lord God, I pray that this morning as we read and study your word, that you, Lord God, would be exalted, honored, and glorified, that your children would be taught and edified, and that anyone who needs to be saved would be brought in near to you, that they might believe the gospel and receive your salvation. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Would you all please open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 15 for the last little bit of that chapter. So, in the narrative, we have finally laid aside, after weeks of careful study and preaching and listening, the, the section that deals with the controversy that arose over, really, the nature of the gospel and the, the soul empowering of it through the grace of God, Right? And now Paul and Barnabas, after some time, are ready to go out on another journey. And they are going this time to try to go back and to strengthen the churches that had been started on the first missionary journey. So some years have passed and they are on their way to go out again. And that's where we pick up the reading at the very end of Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. Follow along with me. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. When you read this passage of Scripture... If, you've, if you were someone reading through the book of Acts for the first time, or for a long time, and, or first time in a long time, and you come to this passage of Scripture, you might, like, take a step back after reading that paragraph and say, whoa, didn't see that coming. Right? I mean, really, it, it, I mean, that, that paragraph does kind of stick out a little bit. We just came through this very difficult and contentious situation where Satan really had grabbed hold of some people who weren't really believers and put it in their hearts that, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. But faith in him, just faith in him, faith alone in him certainly isn't enough to save somebody. I mean, certainly they must also 
get circumcised and convert over to Judaism, essentially, and keep the law of Moses, right? So they went through that whole thing, and the whole contention that was involved with all of that, the traveling to Jerusalem and the, the council and the, the letter they wrote and coming back and, you know, difficult contention. And then some time goes by, and uh, verse 36 says, after some days. So they had spent some time back, and it would seem that things had settled down. But here's something you need to know about Satan. Just because Satan's plan to undermine the gospel, as recorded in Acts chapter 15, didn't work. When we come to the end of Acts chapter 15 and into chapter 16, we see that he is what? Relentless. The work of the gospel is work that happens in the midst of a real spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle involves we who follow and serve the Lord having a very serious adversary that at every turn is attempting to undermine the work of God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time or have endeavored to serve the Lord in your life with consistency and faithfulness, you have no doubt observed this. I can tell you from my position that I certainly have, constantly and relentlessly. There have been times where God has granted a season of peace, but for the most time, I can always seem to detect the work of Satan happening, attacking me, or attacking the ministry of the church to try to undermine what is going on. This is why Peter, when he writes his letters later, famously says that we are to be sober and vigilant. Right? Sober means keeping a clear mind. Vigilant means keeping a clear eye. Right? Sober means our thoughts and our mind are set in the right place. Vigilance means we are keeping our eyes open. Right? We are awake, wide awake, as we walk through life and serve the Lord. Because our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Right? He walks around and he roars. Sometimes he slithers around like a snake. But Peter says he walks around not just like a lion, but like a roaring lion. He's not bashful. Right? He's a bull in a china shop. And he walks around wreaking his havoc in churches and among Christians who love one another and want to serve the Lord. Sometimes he undermines the faith of people. Sometimes he puts it in the hearts of people to, to, to sin. Other times... And here's what happens in this passage today. Other times he just seems to know what buttons to push. Have you experienced that ever in your life as a servant of God? Where you may think everything is going great. And then all of a sudden, without even noticing how, you find yourself locked in some spiritual battle. And you're like, where did that come from? I, I don't, it's hard for me to give specific examples of that because sometimes those examples involve people and I, I, I don't like to, you know, 
be talking about people from my pulpit, but I think, I think you can understand what I'm talking about, right? You're going through life and listen, what was it like for Paul and Barnabas? Man, they went on that missionary trip and all those people got saved and all those churches got started. Then came in the, the, the danger of the attack on the gospel, but they went to Jerusalem and that went exactly perfectly as they hoped it would. And it ended up being even better. It was almost good that the, this, the, that the, uh, the conflict happened because that letter came out of it and, and it just solid, uh, solidified and sealed everything about the truth. It is entirely enough that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and you're saved. There's no religious works involved. You don't need to try to be a better person, good person, this, that. You can't earn anything before God. Jesus, who is perfect and holy, died for our sins, rose from the dead. And this gospel that we're preaching everywhere, that if you just believe in him, he'll forgive you. He'll save you. He'll even give you his Holy Spirit and you'll know it. and You'll begin to follow him and serve him. That is the correct gospel. And it is entirely enough. This is awesome. Everything is going great. In fact, you know what? Let's go back to all these churches that we started and let's see how all of them are doing. Awesome, right? Let me get John Mark. Uh, John Mark? Have you, have you forgotten? And suddenly, these, these two great warriors for Christ... This, this great partnership of servants of Christ find themselves locked in something. And here's what it's, it's said. So they have this desire to go back. Barnabas is determined to take with him John called Mark. Now, Paul insisted they should not take with him the one who had departed from them. That's, you can read that back in Acts chapter 13. In verse 13, I won't read it for now, but you know that uh, when they were on the island of Cyprus, that Mark returned and went back and left them in the work. He had come along with them as their assistant, and then he left and went back. The interesting thing about this conflict is that it's not like Barnabas is sinning to want to take John Mark along. And it's not like Paul is sinning by saying, not a good idea, right? And that's how we have to be sober and vigilant against our adversary, the devil, because that can stir up strife between us. Strife, conflict, disagreement, among believers, even within the realm of ministry, always happens. Right? This is not a lesson about how to avoid all conflict among Christians. What it is, is a lesson on how, I think, to properly deal with conflict that arises among Christians. So let's get into it a little bit. I have, I have four points that I want to make that I think you can see in this passage of Scripture, um, along with a few verses to share with you. And then I want to close the passage, close the sermon, by talking about sort of an epilogue a little bit, how, how, where, where all of this ended up. 
the first thing that I want to point out is the impetus to this conflict was when was not it didn't start with Barnabas and it didn't start with Paul it started with Mark right and it started when as we said Mark who was with them on that first missionary journey when they launched off and they sailed to Cyprus while he was it actually says in Pamphylia while he was in Cyprus he departed and he went back and he went back to Jerusalem we had seen John Mark in Jerusalem before right John Mark was at the house of Mary, uh, Mary who uh, had the house where Peter went to. When Peter got let out of prison that night, and he went and he knocked on the door, and the girl behind the other side of the door didn't believe that it was really him. Rhoda, her name was, right? I mean, John Mark was there. John Mark was like part of that group. We're told in Scripture that John Mark is a relative, actually, of Barnabas, Colossians chapter 4, tells us that John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. And we also know from reading scripture that Cyprus is where they're from. So maybe some of that is what plays into Barnabas wanting to bring John Mark along, right? He's a relative. He's been around the church going all the way back even to the days of the apostles, Peter in Jerusalem, right? And, uh, and Cyprus is where they're from. So maybe they know people on Cyprus, and maybe the ministry on Cyprus would be a very good place for Mark to get reinstalled in the ministry. Paul, on the other hand, of course, what do we know about Paul up to this point? Certainly, when you, if you followed the Bible study this past Thursday night, you know that Paul even confronted Peter at one point when Peter had come to Antioch. And it says that Peter, when he first came to Antioch, he was great having fellowship with the Gentiles who had believed the gospel and had not gotten circumcised because Peter was there at that council that determined that that was not necessary, couldn't add anything anyway. But then when some of these Judaizers pretended to come from James and pretended to be launched off by the Jerusalem church and came there and started preaching the legalism again, then Peter actually got swept up in it, as did Barnabas, it says in Galatians chapter 2, and, uh, and, and pulled back and suddenly wouldn't fellowship with those Gentiles who had not gotten circumcised anymore, which sent all sorts of confusion, all sorts of insult, all sorts of hurt, started all sorts of division, and the Apostle Paul was no player. The Apostle Paul is no joke. And the Apostle Paul is like, no way. And he says, in front of everyone, I rebuked Peter. And challenge him to, to, to settle all that stuff down. So, so you have Barnabas, who Scripture tells us, I'll, I'll read it later, his name deals, his name actually means encourager, encouragement. You have Barnabas, who's like the encouraging guy, who's like, all right, let's grab John Mark and let's take him again. And then you have Paul, who was like, no way. He departed from us. Why? We, we did this once before. Don't you remember? He's, we're not going to take him again. It started when John Mark didn't finish what he started. That's where the seeds of it were planted. Here's the part that becomes very relevant to us. I want us all to think in terms of John Mark and what he did and kind of take a look at our, at our own lives. We should finish the things that we commit to. Amen? You, you think that's a good thing? We should finish the things that we start, unless the things that we start are evil. 
then when you become aware that they're evil, you should run from them. But when we commit to things in the Lord, we're going to serve the Lord, we should finish the work that we began. That's what happened. Mark launched off into the work, and Mark didn't finish the work. He left the work. And that's what created, presumably at least a few years later, this division between Paul and Barnabas. Let's be careful of our own actions, brothers and sisters. And let's make sure that, look, when you commit to something, and you're committing to something where you're part of a team, you're part of a body, and you make that, maybe it's a commitment to church, right? It's a commitment to a ministry in the church. Just keep it in the realms of Christianity. But, but if you stepped outside of that, even if you make a commitment to a job or, or to some project, or you make, a, you make a commitment to some sort of team who's doing some sort of thing or whatever, and suddenly midstream for no notice, no explanation given, you just decide, I'm not doing that anymore, and you leave. You maybe had your reasons within yourself why that was important, but that has an effect on other people. I think, I think one of the biggest things that in the modern world is a weakness among all humans, but it's even infiltrated the church, is that we make decisions exclusively based on what they mean for ourselves. That's not a proper way to make decisions. Not for a Christian whose life is characterized by being a... Begins with an S. Very good. Servant. Right? My life is not mine. Paul, at the very end of his life, when he wrote to Timothy, the last thing that Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the last chapter of everything that Paul wrote, he wrote to Timothy and he said this to Timothy, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. That's one of the reasons we quit stuff. Because it gets hard. How many of you have learned that Christianity is hard? Have you learned that? How many of you have learned that serving the Lord is hard? Paul says... Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. And Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. And famously he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right? Paul could say that. And as a result, joyously and without any conceit, he could write to Timothy for the sake of encouraging him and say, I've run the race and I've finished my course. You need to endure afflictions and fulfill your ministry. Because when I'm at the end, the Lord's going to give me a crown of righteousness and He will to you too. Finish. When it comes to Christian faith, don't stop believing. When it comes to Christian service, don't stop serving. In the case of John Mark, it had a negative effect on the people who were left 
holding what he walked away from. Not immediately, perhaps, but it did years later, didn't it? May I encourage you today, everyone look at me. May Everyone look at me. May I encourage you today, please consider the effect of your words and your actions on others in the body of Christ. And become a person that thinks with the good and the welfare of your brothers and sisters in view. And if we all do that for one another, then the decisions we make will actually encourage one another and bind us together in love. Amen? Secondly, uh, I talked about finishing what you commit to, but I also mentioned you have to be careful how your actions affect others. It reminds me, I just want to read this passage of Scripture to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, this passage of Scripture that has to do with how you use your liberty. Paul said this to the Corinthian church, Beware, beware. What does beware mean? It's a strong word, it's a warning. It means be, oh, it's a combination of the words, be aware. Right? Don't fall asleep. Notice. Be cognizant. Be aware. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, what liberty? The liberty we have in Christ. We sang about it today, right? My chains are gone. I've been set free, right? Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, right? Because I'm free. I don't have to think about circumcisions and Sabbaths and, and, and holiday feasts and rituals and sacrifices and slay this animal and sprinkle the blood here, sprinkle the blood. I'm not, you know, don't eat this, don't touch that. I'm free. That's the liberty that I have in Christ. I've been saved. It's done. Now I'm free to just serve Him. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. That's not the issue I know in the book of Acts. The issue is not that there was somehow like an exercise of liberty that caused stumbling. But the principle of thinking about how what you do affects others That certainly, that same principle is at work in this. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, what does that mean? I mean, mean, don't have to worry about this, right? We don't eat in idol's temples. Well, no, there was an ancient practice that somebody might, especially among the Gentiles, especially in a place like Corinth, which is steeped in Greek pagan mythology, You know, uh, somebody might eat a meal in a particular place that may also have been used to worship pagan idols. Or somebody might eat meat that had been, the, the animal that the meat is from may have been sacrificed to some pagan god, right? That specifically maybe doesn't have much relevant to us, relevance, but the principle does. We might do things that cause the spiritual sensitivities of a weaker brother to stumble. Again, thinking about how our actions affect others. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. In other words, the weaker brother may see that and say, ah, oh yeah, okay, I, I guess that's okay. And might tiptoe in and do the same thing and then just just for weeks feel guilty about it. 
and be caused to stumble, and it may cause their faith in the Lord to be weakened. Not good. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat again meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Right? So, while stumbling blocks are over issues of conscience are not the specific issue at work in Acts chapter 15 in this passage. The principle there of what? Taking my liberty and the things that I have liberty to do and using that liberty not just to do whatever makes me feel good, but thinking about the things that I do and the effect that they have on my brothers and sisters and acting wisely and acting accordingly and acting in love. That is what is preferred. Right? What happened with John Mark, we're not told why John Mark went back, but John Mark's actions certainly had an effect on Paul and Barnabas almost certainly. But Barnabas came around a little quicker wanting him to come back, but Paul wasn't there yet. And so Mark's actions did not take into account how they would affect Paul and Barnabas. And as a result, when it's time to go back out, let's go check those churches out again. They have a contention between the two of them that is so strong that they split up. That was caused by what Mark had done and created. So, so you see what the point is? Do you see what the practical nugget of wisdom for you and I is? When you make, first, I mean, they go hand in hand, these first two things. Finish what you commit to and be careful about how the decisions you make and the actions you walk in have an effect on your brothers and sisters. Okay? You see that in the word, right? Wisdom there. All right. Number three. I mentioned this already. But disagreements do arise. What's the passage saying? Verse 39. Like I said, the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. Disagreements do arise. I want to say a word about this. I believe, of course, God used what happened between Paul and Barnabas mightily for his glory, which I'll talk about in a, a couple more minutes here. But I also want you to see that disagreements among brethren which happen are things which need to be settled. There's this little, there's this little passage in Philippians chapter 4. And let me read this to you. Listen carefully to this. As Paul is beginning to bring the letter to a close, and he's starting, you know, how he says, greet this person, greet that person. Early in chapter 4, right before he launches into that sort of thing, he says, I implore, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Right? So Philippians, what do you know about Philippians? You know that Paul wrote the letter from prison. You know that it's the rejoice letter, right? I mean, right after, literally right after this passage, the next verse is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So it's, it's the rejoicing letter. And there's, there's virtually nothing of 
any sort of rebuke given to this church. I mean, he just encourages them up and down. And yet here was an issue in that church. There were two women, and they were both, let's say, type A kind of women, maybe. They were women who were very involved in the ministry. They Obviously, because it says that in the second verse that I read. They were involved with the work of the gospel, but they were not eye to eye on something. And we're not told what it is. The fact that we're not told what it is, is enough to prove that it was not something that should have kept them apart. Because if it was some issue of black and white, right and wrong, then Paul would have said, this one's right, this one's wrong. Or Paul would have said, here's what I think, not this. But he doesn't. He simply says, I implore them. And he puts the word implore in front of each of their names. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then who else does he encourage after that? So, I mean, how do you like that? How about having your disagreement with another person called out in the Bible? Right? Well, in a way, it's good for us, right? Because we can read about it. So, so anyway, uh, I urge you also, true companion. And I, along with some others, not everyone agrees about what true companion is, but, but I believe true companion is a reference to the church itself the church at Philippi, who he's addressing the letter to, right? I urge you also, true companion, what? Help these women who labored with me in the gospel. In other words, help them what? Help them settle whatever it is between them. They're not of the same mind in the Lord, and it needs to be settled. Church, help them. Right? So, that's just another point that I wanted to make. Disputes arise. Disagreements arise. What Christians don't do, listen very carefully, what Christians never do is fuel the fire. You get with one of the two, and you get behind the other one's back, and you begin to talk, and you begin to talk in such a way that just kind of fuels the fire and stirs up the controversy even more. No. What Christians do is they help the two people reconcile because what does Ephesians chapter 4 say we are supposed to do? Let me read it to you. I didn't print this one out, but I want to read this passage of Scripture to you. I said four. I meant three. Whoops. Nope, chapter 4. was right the first time. See, I should have printed it out. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the equipping of the saints and the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he goes on to describe that. In other words... Unity in the faith is a great objective of the church. And when there were these two women who were women who were very involved with the ministry of the church and were not of the same mind in the Lord, 
The church's job was to do whatever it could to help them be of the same mind. Now, the resolution of a conflict might be discovering who is wrong and correcting the one who is wrong. The resolution of a conflict might be to see that maybe not either party is actually wrong about something, but that whatever their difference is, it must be set aside for the sake of the ministry and the sake of the unity of the ministry. There's no place because the church is not ours, right? I mean, Jesus taught us when he taught us to pray. The close of that prayer is, for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. The kingdom of God is God's. The church is the body of Jesus. And so there isn't room within the church to fight for your turf. We are to be unified. We are to be one. We are to be kind and tender-hearted and merciful and patient with one another. And wherever the church can help people settle differences, it should. Amen? Fourth point, and that is that the ministry came first. Ultimately, the result of the conflict between Paul and Barnabas was what? Barnabas, we're told in the scripture, uh, in the middle of verse 39, Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And I've heard, I've heard some preachers in the past make something of the fact that it says that Paul and Silas were commended by the brethren to the grace of God as if to mean that Paul was right because it doesn't say that Barnabas was commended to the grace of God. I, 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 I don't accept that because of ultimately what becomes of, of both Barnabas and Mark especially. Uh, I think the only reason you get an extra word about Paul and Silas is because Luke, who wrote Acts, was like a lifelong companion and scribe for the Apostle Paul. And the narrative of the book of Acts follows Paul, as written down by Luke. So you just know more. You just get more details about Paul and Barnabas. I don't think in this contention that necessarily either one of them was wrong. But the contention was, show, was very sharp because both of them knew that they were right. And so what they did was they split up. But do you notice this? They didn't split up with what's described as anger, bitterness, hatred. They didn't split up in a way that factioned the church. We do not read that the Antioch church split in half and half of them followed Barnabas and half of them followed Paul. What we read is they took the territory of the missionary journey they were going to go on and they split that in half. And we're told that Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus, home turf. And they, Paul took Silas and went to Syria and the region there of Antioch. Syria and Cilicia. Guess what was part of Cilicia? Tarsus, where he was from. So that was Paul's home turf, if you will. So they actually split. The point is, they split in a way that became, ready? Beneficial to the ministry. 
they split from one another in a way that actually ended up helping the work. So what you see is these two brothers in the Lord, even though the contention between the two of them was very strong, they put themselves down and put the good of the ministry ahead of them. You, as I said, you don't read of the church being factioned and you don't read of the ministry not getting done. You read of Barnabas going and taking care of one region and Paul going and taking care of the other. Also in the providence of God, it was good that Silas had come back from Jerusalem with Paul after the council there, right? Because now Silas becomes what Barnabas had been, the right-hand man to the Apostle Paul. And as you read into chapter 16, you read about how the ministry continues to be advanced through Paul and Silas. Also in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul gave this description. Listen to this excellent description of what I think is the spirit behind their decision to part and go in the different directions that they did, and what should be the spirit that I think is in us with regards to the ministry when it comes to perhaps personal disagreements with others over certain things. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, ready, that the things which happened to me, listen everyone, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Good attitude? He's in prison. But he says, I want you to know the stuff that happened to me, it actually happened so that the gospel would be further spread. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Hey, Paul, in prison, bad thing, right? But... He's chained in, the, in Caesar's palace and the whole palace guard then becomes aware of the fact that the reason he's chained there is because of the gospel. So they learn the gospel. Good thing. Other brothers and sisters who see how bold Paul is in his chains, they're encouraged and they become bold. Good thing. Paul's attitude was, even though bad thing, I'm in prison, all of these other good things for the ministry have come out of it. And so... A-okay with it. Right? Amen? That should be, look, that should be our attitude as well. If I suffer, if, if I don't get my way, if I need to humble myself and put someone ahead of myself, if the work of the gospel advances, hallelujah. Because in the end, what God is going to be concerned with and what God is going to reward is the advancement of the gospel, not that I want to fight. Follow? He says in that passage going on, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former, the envy and strife people, they preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add afflictions to my chains. So there were even some who preached Christ who didn't agree with the way Paul did what he did. They continued to preach Christ but tried to distance themselves from Paul in such a way that would actually make Paul's imprisonment worse. 
Then he says, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? What then? You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I'm so glad I have the former ones and I don't care. I am so glad I have the latter ones and I don't care about the former ones. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm so glad and God bless these ones who understand that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel and curse be upon those who are trying to add affliction to my chains. No, you know what he says? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He not only rejoiced, but he made a decision, a determination that he would rejoice that the gospel was being preached, even though some of the people preaching it were not maybe doing it in the right way and doing it in a way that added to his affliction as a prisoner. Wow! What an attitude! Complete self-abasement for the glory of Christ and for the exaltation of the gospel. Boy, if we had an army of Christians today that had that attitude towards Christian service. It's not about me. It's not about getting my, what I want. It's not about me getting my way. It's not about me winning quarrels with other people. It's about the gospel going forth. By whatever means God chooses it to go forth. Even to my own detriment. Only and in every way that the gospel gets preached. You know why? Because my reward for the gospel does not come from winning an argument or getting my way in this life. My reward for the gospel comes when this life is over and I stand before Christ. That's when the crown of righteousness comes and not before. And so Paul's like, whatever. Right? So those are the four, four points. Let me just give you a short epilogue and we're done. But the, the four points were, number one, Looking at the example of John Mark, finish what you commit to. Finish what you commit to because it has an effect on others. Number two, be careful about anything that you do and the effect that it has on others. Number three, disagreements do arise, but all of us together should do everything we can to help them be solved peaceably and lovingly. And number four, the ministry comes first. I think you see all of that in this passage of Scripture. What's the epilogue to all of this? Paul, that's part of it. No, that's good. That's good. Paul is going off now with Silas. And the rest of the book of Acts you read is about him. But what about Barnabas and Mark? What happens to them? Well, first let me say about Barnabas this. 1 Corinthians 9.6 says... You could be wondering why I'm quoting this when I first quote it, but it says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? What does that have to do with anything? The Apostle Paul was writing a passage of Scripture there in 1 Corinthians where he was rhetorically asking the people that he was writing to in this, with this particular question, uh, why are other people allowed to have this freedom and other people are allowed to have that freedom? And then he says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? The point that's relevant to this is, why is Barnabas' name even there? Paul didn't go to Corinth for many more years. And Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians until well after this whole split with Barnabas. 
So the point is this. Paul must have continued to be aware of and have respect for the ministry of Barnabas long after the split happened, even though you don't read about it. But the fact that Barnabas was still on Paul's mind when he was writing to the Corinthian church shows you that Paul kept tabs on his old friend Barnabas. Isn't that beautiful? Acts 4.26. I'm sorry, 4.36. Going way back in Acts, but really you're going ahead because listen. The book of Acts was written after the events in the book of Acts happened. You understand that, right? So Luke, who's writing in the book of Acts, when he's writing it, is looking back. And Acts chapter 4, verse 36 says, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May I say to you that I see something very reconciliatory about the fact that when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he included for us that his name meant son of encouragement. He didn't have to write that. God had him write it down. But that shows me that even years later, there was still good will from Paul, who had a great influence over Luke. There was still good will in Paul's heart towards Barnabas, who he had split up with before that. And it's just, it's just beautiful. When you see people who are able to disagree, but recognize that their disagreement is not as important as the work of the ministry. So they went their separate ways, and years later when they write, I want you to know that Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And one more in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11 and verse 24. This really touches me. It says, Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 22. It says, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. That is the ministry that was happening in Antioch. And so they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue in the Lord. Listen to this. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. May I say to you, there are not many people in the Bible who are called good men. Barnabas is called a good man by Luke, the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul, writing years after they had this contention and split and went their separate ways. That, that happened before the contention, contention. But what I'm telling you is the book of Acts was written as a history, looking back. And so when Luke is writing and mentions that Barnabas came to Antioch, he describes Barnabas as a good man. And we all know there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, none who seeks after God. Paul wrote that too, quoting from the Old Testament. And here's Barnabas called a good man. Not that he was good in that he was not sinful and needed salvation like the rest of us. But he was just a good guy. And God saw fit that that was pointed out. That's, you know what that is? You know what these, these comments about Barnabas are? They're reconciliatory. They're gracious. They're showing and proving that even in the midst of disagreement, there was still love among the brethren. Now Mark. What happened to Mark? 
Well, Brian down here, the first thing, if you didn't hear him, the first thing that Brian said when I said, what about Mark? He said, the gospel of Mark. Yeah. How did that come about? You know, first of all, later on, when Paul writes Philemon, he refers to Mark as a fellow laborer. Again, way after all of this stuff happened. When Peter writes 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, he refers to Mark as my son. So Mark, so Mark, upon departing from Paul and Barnabas, obviously met up with Peter at some point and became a very instrumental assistant in Peter's life. Maybe, maybe we can just stop and see that it is believed by many scholars, and I think it's very plausible, that the Gospel of Mark is the first of the Gospels written and is heavily influenced by Peter's relationship with Mark. Because there are things in it, a few things that like only Peter and maybe one or two other people would know. And of course, Peter was the apostle who was the one that God used to initiate just about everything else, so why not the writing of the Gospels as well, right? He initiated, Peter was the one who preached the first sermon at Pentecost. Peter was the first one to take the Gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was the one who went down to Samaria after Philip had gone there and prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Why not Peter be the first one through the assistance of Mark to write down his Gospel account? And thus we have the Gospel of Mark in the Bible. But let me close by going back to the famous words of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I just mentioned to you before what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 about finishing the race. As he gets to the very, very end of the letter, he says this. Be diligent to come to me quickly, he says to Timothy. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia. Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. And then you know what he says? Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. <laughs> All those years later, he's in prison and he's about to die and he knows it. And one of the last people that he calls for is, Timothy, when you come, bring Mark with you. Because he's useful to me. Listen, at the passage we're reading today, it says they split because of Mark. But in the end, Mark had come back. What does that show? Everyone look at me. Look at me. Look at me. If you've failed, there is hope to be restored. Raise your hand if you've ever failed. Raise your hand if you've ever failed. I'll raise both of mine. I only have two, so that's all I've got. Mark had failed, but look what Mark became. He became someone that wrote one of the four Gospels and someone who was called for by the Apostle Paul, being declared useful for ministry. If you're in Christ and you're in the church and you just feel like you're in a rut, you feel like you're dry, you feel like I've failed, you feel like I just can't ever get it right. You feel like I, I, I just keep messing up. May I say to you, look at Mark. Look what Jesus did in Mark. He brought him back 
He can, you can, listen, you can come back. Humble yourself. Repent. Confess your faults to the Lord. And then trust His mercy. Trust His grace. Trust His forgiveness. And get up and get going again. And that's all there is to it. Open your Bible and start to read. Get on your knees and start to pray. Get up and get yourself to church. Just start again. The church of today needs marks. We need lots and lots of marks who will get back up and get going. Come back. God is gracious. God is loving. God is merciful. He didn't come for the righteous to begin with. He didn't come for those. He didn't come for the healthy to begin with. He came for the sinners. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the elite. He didn't come for the rich. He came for the the misfits, the poor, the ones who were broken, the ones who were trampled on, the ones who had no justice in their lives. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Trust in His grace and get up and come back. And Mark will, uh, Jesus will restore you as He did Mark. Maybe you need to come to Christ for the first time. Come to Jesus. As has been portrayed in our songs, our prayers, everything else today. I mean, today's passage isn't the classic gospel passage focusing on what Jesus did, right? But you know it from the rest of the things we've said today. Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins. He took the wrath of God against our sins and was killed. Crucifixion. They buried him in a grave, and on the third day he rose from the dead. He conquered and destroyed all the power of death. And he has made the one and only way that anyone can be redeemed, saved from their sins. If there's any other way for a person to be saved, then there was no need for Jesus to die like he did. Jesus died, rose from the dead. God is knocking on the door of your heart, so to speak. Receive him. Believe the gospel. Put your faith in Christ. He will wipe away all of your sins. He will give you new life. His spirit will come into you. And you will become a child of God. With the promise of eternal salvation and eternal life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you Lord for this word today. Help us, Lord, please, who are your children, to finish the work we've started, to be careful about how our actions affect others. Help us, Lord, to resolve disagreements in a peaceful, gracious, humble way and in a way that puts your ministry first. Help us to look at the examples of Paul, Barnabas, Mark. Help us to look especially at the example of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And help us to live our lives for your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.